the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. If you have a loved one who is struggling with alcohol or other drugs, you may have feelings of frustration, anger, fear, or sadness. You may also feel powerless and unsure of how to offer help or support. According to today's guest, Dr. Jeffrey Foote, you don't have to try a tough approach or wait for your loved one to hit rock bottom before taking action. He contends that you can be a force for positive change. Dr. Foote joins us to offer practical advice to help you navigate substance use or other compulsive behaviors without creating conflict. Dr. Foote is co-author of the book Beyond Addiction and the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends. Welcome, Dr. Foote. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Doctor, it's been reported that one in four families in the United States are impacted by substance abuse. Why do you believe we are seeing this type of addiction rate? Well, it's not that's not a new rate, so that's really kind of the steady state that we've always had. Um, certainly, we're in the middle of a really terrible um, uh, overdose epidemic <clears throat> related to opiates and related to fentanyl specifically. But um, I, I guess I've been in this field long enough to have seen a variety of really terrible uh, moments in time. Back in the 80s, there was the, um, uh, a window of time when, when crack was a big thing and uh, was creating a lot of havoc. And so we seem to have these different waves. Right now, this is a particularly terrible one of, um, of a lot of loss of life related to um, opiates. So, you know, when you, when you step back and look at the numbers um, and that rate of one in four families is affected, I think it's probably even almost a, a bit higher than that um, because um, if you just ask the question, how many people um, have alcohol use disorder in this country, you're talking about 20 million plus people. Um, and, you know, if an average family um, uh, is, you know, three, four people getting affected by that. Um, and you're talking about 80 million people, um, just for alcohol issues alone. So, um, it's an ongoing issue and it's been with us for a long time. Well, you just said that this has been a problem that we've had for a long time. Has the pandemic made it worse? Did we have these types of numbers pre COVID? It, it definitely made it worse. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the opiate overdose rate was going up um, astronomically since the uh, early teens, 2012, 2013, 2014, started to really escalate. Um, but certainly COVID has made that worse. COVID has made use of almost every substance worse, including alcohol. You mentioned that it seems to come in waves. Is there something that you're able to pinpoint going on within society that leads to these waves? No, I mean, there's always speculation in this studies on what causes these kind of things. Um, but, you know, if you look at that, supply is always an issue. Um, the degree of uh, treatment that's available is an issue. The public education uh, is has an impact on these types of things. Um, you know, for right now, there's a, there's a problem with supply, um, which is a, a supply of opiates called fentanyl um, are causing a, a huge problem and a huge number of deaths. Um, but that's different than the emergence of crack, for instance, which was a new form of cocaine. Um, so it really sort of depends on the era and the substance. Um, and what we have tried to really focus on is just 
how do we help people? Um, and I'm a clinical psychologist and has spent my career doing work with the client who is struggling specifically with substances, the person who's got that issue. Um, but over the last 10 years, have really we really branched out and started to um, do some work with our foundation for families very specifically um, as a group of people who are also really neglected in this whole in this whole picture. Um, there's, there's treatment providers, there's the people struggling with the substances, uh, and then the kind of the last people who get any attention typically are families um, and, and what we've known about that for a long time but, but the treatment system has not really acted on is, boy, there's a lot of power in that, in that family unit. There's a huge amount of motivation, a huge amount of dedication and love. And if we could give families some tools that actually are effective um, instead of traditionally some tools that aren't, aren't so awesome and aren't so effective, uh, we might really be able to make some headway. So that's what we have shifted our focus to as well. Obviously, education is important. And you just mentioned fentanyl. So for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with what is going on, can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I remember recently I was speaking with um, an addiction recovery specialist who told me when we were younger, if someone smoked mm-hmm. pot or something like that, you had the luxury of making a mistake. But with fentanyl, mm-hmm. he said, it only takes one time to kill you. Is that accurate? And, and can you tell our parents a little bit about it? Sure. Um, and, and the scary thing about fentanyl. So in, in, again, in, in the world of substance use, um, um, we're, also, we're also old enough to remember that there's always scary messages around substance use. Um, so, you know, going, going back, you know, 80 years, the, the messaging around any kind of substance, alcohol or marijuana, all these different things, has always been kind of um, uh, amplified as a really terrible um, uh, type of, of experience that someone could have. And, you know, they'll, they'll be washed away um, in the grips of these things. Um, that often has not been the case, actually. It's not an accurate description of substances. Uh, we just happen to have a situation right now where fentanyl, which is a um, synthetic opiate, um, you know, so the non-synthetic opiates are things like heroin, um, and then we started to have a problem with uh, manufactured opiates for pain. OxyContin has caused lots of problems and um, was widely distributed around the country and marketed heavily, which now pharmaceutical companies are you know, paying hundreds of millions of dollars to try to get off the hook for that kind of stuff. But um, um, as a separate issue, um, a, sub- a synthetic opiate called fentanyl has been um, around now for a decade and um, is a highly potent form of an opiate. So opiates, um, if you take too much of an opiate or if you take in a highly, uh, very strong version of an opiate, um, you uh, can shut down your breathing mechanism is really what happens. Um, and that's why people are dying. Um, so fentanyl has bizarrely made its way into all sorts of things on the internet, including benzodiazepine pills like Xanax and stuff like that. It's in there. Or it could be put into other substances. So um um, we're finding it in cocaine samples for people who come in and get tested for cocaine use. They have fentanyl in their cocaine. So people are overdosing with having no idea that they're taking an opiate. Um, so that's the really scary part right now. Well, you know, we always try to tell parents or loved ones what to watch out for, the warning signs of addiction. But with this, you may not even have the opportunity to see those signs. Right. That's true, because um, it can be a one-time thing. And again, after Lots of years of messaging about one time will kill you. Um, this substance actually can kill people. It is a scary thing. Um, and again, what we have tried to start to do is work with families. Um, so there's, there's recognizing signs of substance use, but then there's the longer term picture of how do I really help a loved one? Um, and how can I effectively have them start to think about doing something different, have them start to think about changes? Um, and, you know, with most families, when these issues come up, it, they're scary. Uh, they make people upset. They make people feel anxious. Um, if I'm the person using a substance in a family, I know that people are going to be upset and scared and, and angry and so forth. So I'm typically you know, going to go underground and not talk about it or not tell the truth about it, that kind of thing. Um, so communication typically gets bad and suffers and people just don't know how to interact around these issues. Um, and, you know, it's the last thing you want as a a family member or a parent is you want to know how to help you want to know um, what would be effective here um, and and how to help me how do I navigate this situation it's not something that you know we were ever trained to do 
uh, as a parent. And so, so that's what we've done. That's what we've written this new book, Beyond Addiction Workbook, um, is to is to really help explain this and give people some very practical tools to approach their family member. If a parent or a loved one sees the signs within a family member and that person is not willing to admit that he or she has a problem, how can this situation be approached in a non-judgmental manner so that there is effective communication? Yeah, well, we, we have um, spent about the last 10 years developing a whole approach uh, called the invitation to change. And the, and the words in that matter, it is an invitation um, that is being stressed um, to uh, a loved one to consider change. Uh, and sometimes that way of thinking about it can can feel um, challenging to a family member, to a, to a parent, for instance, um, because they would rather just have change happen. Um, so most of us as family members are more likely to go into the demand change mode uh, as opposed to inviting change. And so in this approach, the invitation to change, there are uh, there are sort of three main areas to think about as a as a helper. And it's what we, we consider a helping model. How can I be a more effective helper? And, th- and that could be as a parent, as a sibling, as a friend, uh, as a therapist. So it's not really just limited to families, um, but it's a way to know how to help. Uh, and we start with trying to help people um, help with understanding. So how can I understand the other person? Um, and I'll, I can talk about that in a minute. Then we also talk about helping with awareness. How do I stay aware of myself in this process? And then helping with action. What are the tools specifically, um, reinforcement, communication tools that I can use? But we start with the whole helping with understanding. This is kind of the foundation of how to be an effective helper. Um, if I if what we have found over and over again is if I can't really put myself in the other person's shoes just even a little bit, doesn't mean I have to, I'm not agreeing, I'm not, you know, um, blessing what they're doing. I'm just trying to get myself to understand what might be happening here over in their side of the street. Um, it, if I can do that, if I can start to think through, this is my kid, I know how anxious they are, I know when they smoke pot, it really helps them socialize, it really helps them um, uh, not feel so anxious all the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't even actually go out of the house. Um, those types of understandings really start to shift our whole approach to our loved one. Um, because then instead of feeling like an assault on us or an insult or a betrayal, um, it starts to feel like, okay, I don't like this, but I get it. I can understand, you know, you have, my husband has chronic pain and, you know, from a, an injury to his back. Um, my wife is grieving the, the loss of her mother and has been in a terrible place with this for the last year and has been drinking too much. Like these, are, these are the reasons that people use substances, not because they're evil. They use them because it makes sense to them in some way, in, in very straightforward ways, not, not hard to understand ways. Um, and if we can help a family member start there, can you look across the table and get yourself in that person's head a little bit and understand why this might be happening. It just changes the whole interaction. It makes it more compassionate. It makes me feel less betrayed. It makes me feel like helping more. Um, and then I can move into um, other tools and learn how to communicate in, in new ways that are really helpful. But if I'm just angry and upset and feeling betrayed all the time because uh, I don't understand this at all, I'm, I'm going to have a much harder time being a, an effective helper. When you take this approach as a loved one, do you find that the person who is addicted becomes more receptive? Is this a way in to help the person? It is. And, you know, it, it, the, it's very easy to have an interaction with somebody. As I mentioned before, you know, the, your loved one um, knows they're doing something that you probably don't approve of or that, you know, you would be upset about. Um, and so it's very easy to have an interaction with that person that makes them go underground or makes them feel defensive or makes them feel aggressive towards me. Um, like that's, that's the usual, you know? So the real question is, how do I, how do I approach this in a way that's going to help them be less defensive, help them put some of their guard down, help them feel like, okay, we could have a talk about this. I don't have to just shut you out totally. Cause, cause that's what you want. I, I want to be able to talk to you. I want you to be able to maybe hear some ideas. I want to be able to understand what's going on with you. 
Um, and that stuff is that communication is very easy to shut off. Um, so yes, starting with a, from a place of understanding them, again, not the same as agreeing uh, um, um, or blessing it, but understanding really changes what's going on. And the second part of this then is is of this helping idea is helping with self awareness. So that's the part where we include ourselves in this change process. So. I want to help my son or daughter or husband or whoever it is. Um, can I stay aware of myself in this process? So I'm, I've spent a little time trying to understand what's going on with you. Um, now can I also be paying attention to me and knowing that I'm really tense or I'm really upset or I'm pretty exhausted um, and I'm in a lot of pain? Um, and can I start to bring that into the picture so that I'm not just left out of this all the time and feeling like I've, I've completely run out of gas or... Um, I've got nothing left in me to help anymore. Um, so not forgetting ourselves in this equation matters a lot um, in sustaining these kind of this helping role. You know, people really exhaust themselves trying to help loved ones, um, and then they're just in the worst place. They're angrier. They're more more fatigued. Uh, you know, not thinking straight, um, and acting in ways that they don't want to be acting as a person either. So yeah. the awareness part is helping them become aware of themselves, including, as a family member, including your own values. How do you want to show up to this? How do you want to be as a parent? Um, even even though you're worried and upset, how do you want things to be going with your child and you, um, or your husband and you? Um, and being able to access that that part of you and say, I, I could shout and I could scream and slam the doors and kick them out, but that's not actually who I am as a person. That doesn't feel right to me. That isn't it's not what I want with my loved one here. So how can I pay attention to myself and understand what it is I do want and how, how I do want to show up to this? When you made a great point also, Doctor, because I think a lot of times people come from that place of shouting and demands and, you know, the ultimatums because they think that if they approach it in any other way, they're enabling and they're condoning mm-hmm. The behavior. Mm-hmm. So that was a great mm-hmm. point that you made because I think people try to navigate that balance, enabling and loving kindness. And and no doubt, you know, the 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 shouting and the and the yelling and stuff like that is coming from. I mean, they want to help still, um, but they're frustrated or they're end of their rope kind of a thing. And and that's where we, we can all get to that place. You know, it's it's totally understandable. Um, and all we're saying in this in this invitation to change approach is slow down, check in with yourself, know that this is hard, let's acknowledge that this is painful. But if you're trying to help somebody you love, it's going to be painful. And we talk about that idea as trying to change our whole relationship to, to pain, really, and to discomfort. Um, you know, we can get into the feeling of, you know, why can't they just go back to how they used to be? And why can't our family just run the way it used to run? And you know, I didn't. I didn't ask for this, um, and of course that's true. You didn't ask for it, um, and it's not going to go back the way it was. So can I can I do some work to accept the idea that this is actually where we are? This is true, um, and it's going to be hard. And it's going to be painful, and the goal doesn't have to be to try to make all that pain go away, to try to make us a, a quote happy family again. Um, the goal can be how do we stay connected? How do I show up? in ways that are so important to me, and how can I help them think about this? You know, shouting, back to the question about the shouting, yes, it's it's less likely um, to be effective because you're just going to make the person get back against the wall and feel defensive, mm-hmm. and then you've lost them. You had mentioned before that some people who get addicted are people who start off with a bad back, they have back pain, or they have other types of pain that escalates to an addiction. How much... Mm-hmm of the addiction issue is tied to mental health issues. Is, is that what we should be addressing at the core? Well, I think, I think we should be addressing it all. You know, um, the, the, <clears throat> the whole idea, I mean, we, we can use the word addiction. Sometimes people use this, have the idea that it's a disease, that kind of a thing. Um, there's, there's not a lot of evidence for that, <laughs> truthfully. Um, and um, that can be kind of a, a shocker to people, but really, if you step back and look at who's struggling with substances, it's a wide spectrum of people um, from very mild issues to life-threatening issues across all sorts of substances 
and the way I got into this problem is different than the next 10 people in line. I mean, it's, it's really not a, you know, if you think of a disease, you think of something that is uniform. We can describe the symptoms and the signs of that and what organs it affects and that kind of stuff and what's the typical course. There's nothing like that in substance use issues. There's, a, there's millions upon millions of people who have problems with substance use and then they don't anymore. So like the idea that it's a lifelong disease, it's not actually true. Um, sometimes that's true and it's a lifelong struggle and sometimes it's not true. Um, and I got into it because of my back pain and you got into it because your dad and his dad had really terrible alcohol problems and it's genetic, it's a genetic loading for it in your family. And the next person got into it because they have terrible social anxiety to your point about other mental health issues or they have really bad depression um, and taking a bunch of stimulants is really helpful to them and it, that lets them function. So there's multiple paths into these problems and multiple paths out. There isn't really one size fits all, uh, which is another one of the things we talk about in the Beyond Addiction Workbook. It's one size is not truly going to fit your loved one <clears throat> the same way it's going to fit your neighbor's loved one. Um, it, everyone is different. And um, family members are actually the experts in this. They know what's going on. Um, most family members could describe, they may, if you ask them why your kid or your husband using substances, you may get an angry response at first because they're just irresponsible, because they're a jerk, you know, whatever. But if you slowed them down and said, okay, and why else? Who are they what, that lead them to drink too much? They would tell you. They would say, well, you know, he works really long hours, and I, I've always thought he doesn't know how to express his feelings, and he doesn't know how to blow off steam in any other way than what he learned in college. And so he goes out with his buddies, and he drinks way too much, and he blacks out. Good explanation. Not an excuse. It's an actual explanation for that person. And that's different than the, their neighbor's husband who drinks too much. This is, this is an important part of, of how to think about this. Um, when we say <clears throat> that behaviors make sense, the substance using behaviors make sense. Again, I don't have to like it, but it does make sense. Um, and, and it's different. One size doesn't fit all. It's different for each person. Uh, and it's really critical to, if I'm going to be an effective helper, to actually understand this person, not some person that we're calling an addict or some other sort of pejorative word like that. Right. Labeling the person. Once you yeah. understand the situation, where that person's coming from, and you have an open line of communication, what next? What happens next? Yeah, well, having an open line of communication can take a while. Right. <laughs> so, so me understanding is uh, helpful. It'll slow me down. It'll probably ultimately create some space here in our household for you, the person who's struggling, to feel safer to talk to me. Um, but that can take a while. Um, and, and in the meantime, as we were talking about, you know, I need to be aware of myself. I need to be aware of my own values. Um, I need to be able to start to develop some self-compassion in this whole process. Um, and when I have, if I can keep working on those aspects, understanding them, understanding myself, it creates much more of a fertile ground for things like communication skills training. Um, you know, um, one of the one of the most straightforward ones we talked about is is just simply listening to another person. Can you tell me what's going on? I, I'm not actually going to sit here and make suggestions and try to get you to go to treatment and tell you what's wrong and blah, blah, blah. I just actually just like to hear from you. Like That's a really unusual thing for lots of families when they're under a lot of pressure. The desire to, to say, okay, okay, thanks for telling me that. Now can we go to rehab is really strong. So can we learn to just listen? A lot of these skills come from something called motivational interviewing. And and so this, this whole model, the invitation to change, has elements of different evidence-based approaches that we know are very effective. Motivational interviewing is one of them. It's a whole set of communication skills that are really helpful in lowering defenses. There are skills from something called craft, community reinforcement and family training. How do you do positive reinforcement with somebody? How do you notice the things that are changing instead of only being able to pay attention to the negative stuff every time it happens because that's how we're tuned. You know, we're like waiting for the next shoe to drop and I'm waiting for you to have a relapse and I'm waiting for something bad to happen. That's understandable. But if we are missing any positives, it's not a very rewarding environment for our loved one. So if I as a family member, and this is the action questions you're asking about, if I as a family member can start to notice, I appreciated you getting home on time. You may have smelled like pot, I don't know, but I do appreciate that you got home on time. I appreciate you cleaning your room. 
can we start to have some some positive um, stuff in the mix here uh, to kind of ease the tension, to kind of make this be a place where I will notice change. I will notice success. I will notice positive things. And the number of people who are struggling with substances who say, yeah, my parents, my spouse, all they notice is the negative. I'm always getting lectured. I'm always messing up. It, it's a lot. That's, that is what happens, you know. So can we help ourselves as helpers to notice some of the positive stuff? We know that positive reinforcement is one of the most powerful things we can do to facilitate change. It's just true. It's just as a principle of every research study ever done on change, it doesn't have to do with substances at all. If you want to help somebody change, positive reinforcement is your most powerful tool. We're talking about addiction in this conversation, but what you're teaching us can be applied to foster any type of relationship. Absolutely. Foster relationships, foster connection and closeness, foster greater positivity, and foster change. And again, as you just said, it doesn't have to be about substances. It's not a unique thing. Um, these are principles that are helpful um, for behavior change of any sort. You know, we all struggle with ambivalence about change. I'm asking my husband to stop drinking uh, or to change my kid to change their marijuana use um, while I struggle with exercise and eating. Okay. And there's some common principles in how to help people change that don't, don't have to do with the marijuana and the alcohol part. It have to do with how do we help open those doors for someone, you know? The book is the Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. Doctor, if our listeners would like to get more information about you and your work, where can they go? Well, I think the, the book is available at um, newharbinger.com. Um, and our foundation is uh, cmcffc.org. That's the CMC Foundation for Change. So it's cmcffc.org. And you can go there and, and look at videos and get lots of materials there as well. Dr. Foote, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Do you suffer with heel pain? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, a podiatrist from Woodland Park, New Jersey, practicing at Advanced Foot Care of NJLLC. According to the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain. The condition occurs when the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot becomes inflamed. This ligament is responsible for supporting the foot's arch. Risk factors include being obese, having a very high arch, having tight calf muscles, and participating in activities that create stress on the heel bone. Activities such as running, jumping, certain workout routines. Most people can manage plantar fasciitis with at-home treatment. Resting the foot and applying ice can reduce inflammation. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or naproxen can help with pain management. Stretching the muscles of the leg thoroughly before and after physical activity, as well as throughout the day, may help to reduce the heel pain. Wearing supportive shoes as well as custom-molded orthotics can also help relieve the heel pain. If an individual's plantar fasciitis does not get better with these treatments, see a podiatrist for further treatment options. In today's medical world, there are several non-surgical options available to get rid of plantar fasciitis permanently. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. 
In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. In a moment, cancer changed our lives forever. At this moment, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care. And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything, ever. At this moment, she wants to be in her own bed. I want to be back at school with my friends. I want to be outside playing. Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. According to our next guest, Michael Bianca Splend, Today's corporate leadership model is failing us, driving us to a state that can have serious consequences to our health and well-being. Michael joins us to talk about ways that we can enrich leadership skills by choosing conscious leadership. Michael is a leadership expert and corporate trainer whose new book is Conscious Leadership, Seven Principles That Will Change Your Business and Change Your Life. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us. John, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So, Michael, lay out the situation for us. What's happening in today's corporate environment that you believe is causing leadership burnout? Well, uh, it's, it's a culmination of a variety of different factors, uh, not the least of which, and certainly in the United States, uh, the, the greed center, the profit center, uh, most companies are more interested in shareholder value and revenue than the, the human experience in terms of taking care of their associates. We know for a fact uh, there's ample studies out there that show that a significant number of senior executives and senior managers are, are burnt out, uh, overloaded, overworked. Uh, they're feeling powerless and at the end of the day feeling really demotivated and dissatisfied. You know, I have over 30 years working in the corporate construct and I've actually developed the concepts and the principles for conscious leadership around what I've observed over time. So we have a, we have a situation in our, in our business community in which we have burnout in terms of leadership. Uh, we have folks that are doing good work, good people doing good work, but at the end of the day, unfulfilled and dissatisfied. And you have to ask yourself the question, uh, you know, you look at economic indicators and it tells a story that, yeah, we have low unemployment, but the truth is if you really ask employees that are working for a small, medium, and large companies how satisfied they are and, and got the truth, you'd, you'd find that they're really not satisfied. So there's a different way to approach this. So, Michael, for someone that may not be familiar with the term, what is conscious leadership? Well, I think it's important to understand what it's not. Uh, and what it's not is uh, managers following the corporate playbook, uh, again, at the end of the day, being burnt out. Conscious leadership is waking up. Uh, it's, it's stepping away from leadership autopilot, as I call it. Uh, the fact of the matter is, and, and it's so interesting that, uh, you know, your show is around choosing the right attitude. It's so interesting that... Uh, in, in businesses today, uh, we, have, we have a real difficult situation with, with uh, our employees losing, losing the, the interaction, the human connection that takes place. And so stepping into consciousness means waking up, stepping away from autopilot. The truth is we make thousands of choices every day, and those choices are primarily unconscious choices. We just simply do the things we do every day. Uh, we simply manage to the status quo. Conscious leadership is waking up, stepping into the present tense, and understanding that there's different choices that can be made when you step into a level of awareness and presence with those in which you're leading. Uh, and a number, the, all the seven principles in my book speak directly to how you, you go about doing that. And I want to talk about those principles in a moment. But before that, if this is the way that business is always done and it isn't working any longer, but people are afraid of losing their job or getting in trouble on the job. How do we make this switch? Well, this is where leadership, true leadership steps in. This is where leaders at the top of the house, and I work with executive uh, leaders from across a number of different industries. This is where top leadership within companies need to understand the power behind stepping into consciousness. You create the energetic flow for your organization 
uh, it's it's nice to think that we could start start at the bottom, but that's not the right place to start. The 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 correct place to start in terms of bringing consciousness to your organization is at the is at the executive leadership side. It's the business owner, it's the CEO, it's the folks who operate at the top of the house. They need to embrace principles that change the dynamic and change the flow uh, in which uh, their leadership is actually uh, doled out. You know, following corporate playbooks is important, certainly policies and procedures, but there's, you know, what you do is important, but how you do what you do is the difference between being successful and not. You know, companies are spending a lot of money on hiring new employees, retention is a big deal. Uh, with most companies, uh, you know, some industries are suffering 40, 50 percent uh, attrition in terms of their workforce. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a better way to do this. And it starts at the top of the house, John. And you mentioned principles. Can you briefly share what these are with us? Yes, I certainly can. Uh, the seven principles in short are, and this is, and I, I, I coach this around the act of being. So uh, they're entitled, Be the Real You. Uh, that's not the title. That's not you, the title. It's not you, what your parents think you should be. It's not what your spouse thinks you should be. It's not what your, your uh, environment tells you should be, but the real you, the essence part of who you really are. When you bring that forward, you have a different level of energy and people receive you differently. The second principle is probably uh, one of the more, more challenging ones, but probably the more important of those. And that's be a peace builder, the inside job. In order for us to actually be conscious leaders, we need to quell the fires that exist within our own belief systems. And we all carry those belief systems into the, into the world that we have. They show up as explicit and implicit bias. Uh, being able to recognize what prevents us from stepping into our full self is really important. So it's an inside job. We need to look inside and quell the fires from within. The third principle in the book is be present. And it speaks for itself. You know, when you step into this moment, Joan, you and I are sharing this moment in our lives, and that's all there is. When you realize that and you step into presence, you realize that you you have an opportunity to listen differently. You have uh, an opportunity to interact with the person in front of you differently. And ultimately, you have the the difference in terms of your choices that you're making, choices that can lift people up. So being present is absolutely critical to, to changing the leadership model. The next principle, principle number four, is be a risk taker. Now, Look, I'm not saying to folks out there, your listeners, that you need to be wild risk takers. That's not what I'm saying. But risk, meaning, you know, risk taking the step to to be conscious, risk taking the step to know the people, get to know the people that you lead and serve, you know, risk opening your mouth and standing on integrity and ethics. In my mind, and from the research I've done, and we, you know, the listeners out there can just open their eyes and look, I think we have an epidemic in this country of lack of ethics and integrity. So it really is important to to take the risk to step into integrity and ethics. The next one is to be a transformative communicator. What I mean by that is listening beyond the words. As we know in the human interaction, there's three different components when you're face-to-face. There's the words that you're sharing, there's the tone of voice, and then there's the nonverbals. We also know that the nonverbals tell you more of the story. So listening more than the words, viewing more than you see to be a transformative communicator and taking the chance to get to know the folks that you actually lead and serve. The next one is a controversial one, and I've had a lot of people say, be a love leader, be a love leader. And I'm like, yes. I mean, what one uh, quality in life do we as human beings want to give and receive? And let's be, let's be honest here. And, I get, and when I present this in the corporate construct, people look at me like I have nine heads at times. But I'm like, look, we're dealing with clients, we're dealing with customers, we're dealing with employees. Wouldn't you want all of those entities, both internal as well as external customers, to know that you actually care about them? You actually genuinely and sincerely care about them. That's what I mean by being a love leader, is stepping into caring and really supporting those folks that you lead and serve. And then finally, uh, without having to say a whole lot, be a servant leader. That's a model that that's a model that I uh, ascribe to. That's a model that in, it really informs me in my day-to-day activities as a professional and leadership coach. Uh, you know, being a servant leader means lifting others up. My success is directly predicated on how well I take care of the folks that I lead and serve. So in short, those are the seven principles, Joan. And, you know, Michael, we're talking about these principles in relationship to a corporate environment, but listening mm-hmm. to them, these are leadership principles that we can bring into all areas of our life. Yes. 
Absolutely. Let, let's be clear to the listeners out there. This book obviously has a, is written from a corporate slant. However, in, in many sections in the book, I allude to the fact that the principles aptly apply in business as well as your personal world, and you're absolutely correct. When we think of leadership, leadership is ubiquitous. Yes, there's, there's corporate leaders, there's business leaders, there's not-for-profit leaders, there's educational leaders, there's medical leaders, parents are leaders, grandparents are leaders, friends are leaders. All of us have an opportunity to, to improve the world that we live in by, by embracing these principles. And you're absolutely correct. And as you said, Michael, you've been doing this for some time. And when these principles are put into action, what have you seen happen? What are the results? Well, I have my own experiences, and I left the corporate construct. I was uh, working in the financial services, uh, w- working with a Fortune 100 company, leading lots of people. Uh, and I have 19 years of experience working in financial services across several organizations. What I did is I actually used my, my time working in corporate as a laboratory. So I observed, uh, you know, I observed and developed these principles uh, predicated on what uh, what I was what where I was working, who I was working with, and really developed and experimented with these principles. When I employed these principles, my results both and I was a sales manager as well. So my sales were uh, leading sales results. My customer satisfaction scores improved dramatically, and my employee retention as well as my employee development was also. Uh, impacted very, very positively. So my own experiences have shown that these principles work in a corporate uh, construct. Uh, but I've also, when I, uh, as a professional coach, working with my private clients, and I also uh, have a full-time job working in the largest shipyard in the country, uh, coaching leaders, both civilian as well as military leaders, on enhancing leadership uh, skills. And when I bring these principles and I embed these principles in the, in the folks, with the folks that I'm coaching to develop them, uh, I watch and I see how n- not only the interactions that take place between the uh, the coachee that I'm working with and their direct reports, but organizationally things start to change as well. So it's one interaction at a time, and we, we can change the, the face of leadership. The book is Conscious Leadership, Seven Principles That Will Change Your Business and Change Your Life. If you'd like to get more information about Michael and his work, you can visit IlluminateAmbitions.com. Michael, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? Yeah, thank you, Janet, and thank you for having me on your show here. I, I think the, the real wake-up call is to wake up, uh, you know, turn off the autopilot, Realize that you know choice making is an important uh, part of living as a human being, and particularly as leaders. Our thoughts create our intentions. Our intentions create our choices, and the choices we make in our day-to-day uh, lives create the reality that we live in. So the time time is now to wake up and step into consciousness. Michael, this is great information. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing it. My pleasure, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Did you know that Reiki can help lessen stress, depression, and anxiety? And are you aware that Reiki is now being used in hospitals as a complement to medicine? And it's because of its relaxing effects that Reiki has helped many overcome their health concerns. It was founded by a Buddhist monk named Mikao Yusui of Japan in the early 1920s, and his goal was to help heal broken people. Reiki comes from a universal life force energy which radiates pure love, and this energy is then transferred through the Reiki practitioner's hands to the client. Reiki is considered a form of energy medicine which addresses the entire energy body called the chakras, which correlates to every system within our bodies from our pineal gland all the way down to our adrenals and spinal cord. So why not consider the many benefits of Reiki and how it can help impact the health of your body, mind, and spirit? 
Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified angelic crystal Reiki and magnified healing master teacher. For more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com. Sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Odette Coronel, a coach who helps people create the life and relationships they want. She's here today to discuss the effects of living with a narcissistic partner. Welcome, Odette. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. Odette, more and more people that I speak with are talking about living with a narcissist. They truly believe that their partner may exhibit those tendencies. From your experience with the work that you're doing, what are some of the warning signs that your partner may be a narcissist? Yes, Joan, I've been seeing this in my own clients more and more. And one of the things that you want to notice or look out for is if your partner is trying to manipulate you in some way, because ultimately that narcissism is about manipulation and control. And some ways that they may do this are by gaslighting you, which kind of makes you question your own judgment, or they may do things that are really over the top, very generous and very kind and make you feel like, oh, wow, he must really you know, love and appreciate me. And maybe he whisks you away for a crazy you know, extravagant trip or buys you a very extravagant gift. And the problem with that is that it's not really about showing you how, how much he cares. It's more about stroking his own ego, ego and his own uh, validation. You want to look out for that as well. Or a narcissistic partner would try to isolate you and keep you from your friends or family. You know, you end up feeling lonely and notice that how you, if you're feeling lonely. That may be a sign. Why are you feeling lonely in this relationship? It's really all about meeting his or her own needs. Right. When a narcissist is in, in a relationship, they're really not able to have empathy for their partner. They're really not able to notice or, or understand how their own behavior is going to impact the other person. And they believe, to some extent, many times, that the ends justifies the means. So sometimes they're willing to engage in behavior that might be immoral or, or questionable um, just to get what they want. But it really is ultimately about their own self-validation. And they may get enraged when they don't get that attention or when they feel criticized or attacked and they may become vindictive sometimes they may control the finances and then hold that against you but eventually all of this leads to very negative effects on the partner and not just low self-esteem and anxiety and depression but also health physical health problems as well you might have you know headaches high blood pressure digestive issues chronic pains, you know, living in that constant state of anxiety and stress will take a toll on your mental and physical health. What can someone do to navigate this situation? So the first step to navigate the situation is really to acknowledge and admit that it's happening. Sometimes women are in this, or men, I don't want to say just women, are in this situation and because of the gaslighting and manipulation, they question their own judgment. So you want to really notice and admit that it's happening and notice the effects that it's ha having on your mental, physical health and even on your family and other relationships in your life. So you want to notice that and learn to kind of learn what their manip manipulation tactics are so that you kind of can spot them in advance. And then the next step is to set clear boundaries and be able to communicate your needs clearly. You know, you have to remember that the narcissist in your life does not have empathy. So you can't try to get them to really understand you or you're not going to get them to change. Getting into an argument with them is really not helpful. You're not going to change the behavior or convince them that they're wrong. So you want to just communicate your own needs and be firm when you express yourself. Make sure that you stand up for yourself. And then I think most importantly is to really get support, get support from a therapist, a counselor, a coach, get support from family and friends so that you can have 
help with dealing with the stress, dealing with coping strategies, and help you just navigate the relationship and just offer you some kind of emotional support. But if the relationship really becomes intolerable, you want to really consider ending the relationship. And I know that it can be difficult for a number of reasons, but it is important that you prioritize your own safety and your own well-being. And remember that you really deserve to be treated with respect and kindness, and you deserve to be with someone that you can trust and that trusts and respects you as well. And Odette, is there anything else you'd like to add? The only other thing that I'd like to add is I want the partners of these narcissistic uh, people to just know that it's not their fault. Sometimes the, the, the victims, for lack of a better word, or the partner of a narcissist tends to take on more responsibility than they should for what's going on in the relationship or is trying or tries to make excuses for their partner or feels compassionate because perhaps they know that the partner had a history of trauma within their childhood or in their family. And it's great to have compassion, and that may be a reason for the narcissist's behavior, but it's still not an excuse, and it doesn't make it acceptable. And it's not your job to fix them or your responsibility to make them change. You want to make sure that you prioritize yourself. Odette, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've been doing a lot of work in this area. So if our listeners would like to learn more, you can visit odettecoronel.com. Or as always, to hear more from Odette, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash odettecoronel. Odette, once again, thank you. Thank you so much, Joan. She wants to be home with her friends. But at this moment, she's fighting a brain tumor. Please take a moment and join St. Jude in finding cures and saving children. Visit stjude.org. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.